Welcome back to Interdisciplinary. I'm Cal Cates, and I'm here with uh, Corey Rivera and another incredibly intelligent guest who's going to um, make us think things that we didn't think before and challenge the things that we already think. So that's very exciting. Uh, we are really proud and excited to be sponsored by ABMP. ABMP, Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals, is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from HealWell. Massage therapists and body workers who join ABMP get meaningful resources that make a difference in your career, including free online CE courses, online scheduling included with the ABMP Pocket Suite app, and comprehensive liability insurance that provides protection and peace of mind. Can't get enough podcast inspiration and information? Listen for the ABMP podcast with regular guest hosts, Ruth Werner and Allison Denny. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com. And of course, the moment that you've all been waiting for. One pun, there might be two puns. I've been getting a lot of mileage out of this one, and I'm really excited to share it with you guys. Did you know that if you're going to start a zoo, You've got to have three polar bears, two grizzlies, and a black bear. It's the bare minimum. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Corey, do you have that one? That was snort-worthy. That's good. Yeah, I know. Um, I feel like that's a new category. Uh, I, I do. I actually I pulled up some library puns. So, uh, oh, yes. I just awesome. need to tell you that there's a, there's a top secret library project happening, but it's all very hush-hush. <laughs> Uh, that's my favorite joke about libraries is, you know, that they're supposed to be quiet and I'm single-handedly like the loudest person you're going to (laughs) meet. That is amazing. What a perfect lead in to, uh, the introduction that, uh, our guest actually will, um, do for herself. Uh, we have with us today, someone who is all about libraries, library science, information and related things, and apparently not all about being quiet, which is kind of excellent because, as you know, we're not all about being quiet at Hewell. So, Taylor Zhao? It's Xiao, but very Zhao. close. Yeah, yeah. Um, welcome to the show. Tell us why Why do we have you on here and what, what should we know about you? Sure. Okay. So, my name is Taylor Xiao, uh, pronouns she and hers, and I am an instruction and assessment librarian at the Mary and John Gray Library of Lamar University, which is located in Beaumont, Texas. Um, I am an academic librarian, which is kind of, um, I have to sort of distinct that because it is different from public librarianship and government librarianship and special librarianship. Like there are so many different areas of librarianship and I fall into the academic category. And then um, as an instruction assessment librarian, my job is a lot different than a reference librarian or a subject liaison librarian or government documents librarian because I don't think a lot of people would know that is that there's just so much variability within the field of librarianship and when you go to library school is like the popular name for it um, it's actually just called a master's of library and information science or just a master's of information science Um, you sort of specialize in what area of librarianship you want to go And I had a little bit of experience with academic librarianship, so I further specialized in that. And now I additionally, like I work in like a faculty level position 
Um, and I've been doing academic library work, I want to say for the last like, oh, maybe like five years, five years. And I got introduced to Corey via a friend of ours, Lydia Hayes, who's amazing. And she's currently living like, they're going to have to make a movie about Lydia because she's like on a boat in Guam. <laughs> she's got to Guam. Yeah. on a trench to do microbiology research and play with like, volcanic blue mud I don't know it's it's wildly cool but that's how I got introduced to Corey and why I'm here today <laughs> is yep. she is she on a librarianship no she's okay. she does microbiology stuff um okay. I mean there's so much more about it that I don't even know now I well I've never heard this word librarianship and now I have this image of all these librarians on this big ship and oh. so <laughs> it's very it's very exciting um yeah, I can't wait to dive into um, this particular brand of librarianship with okay, you. Cool. And I know Corey has many questions already queued up. Sweet. I I do. So what's what's a day like for you other than, um, as we discussed before recording, loaded with coffee? <laughs> um, okay, so I have two key parts to my job. One is instruction and one is assessment. And the day-to-day -day looks different depending on the season of the semester. So if we are getting a lot of um, library instruction requests, which are basically um, requests that have been submitted by um, teaching faculty on campus or you know whether or not they're off campus, but they belong to the university, and they submit a library request to basically have a librarian teach a session for their class all about information literacy and how to do research. And what we teach varies, you know, depending on the class needs and where their skill levels are at. And um, so when it's an instruction heavy season, my day to day looks like get to the office, pour a bunch of coffee. I sit down and I manage all of our instruction requests and I match different courses um, with different librarians to see who's available. Lots of lesson planning, um, background research on the particular topic, reviewing of assignments. And then um, if I'm teaching a class, then I go and prepare all my materials. I get the class ready. I teach the class. And then I would say after that, I need like at least a half hour to like decompress. Um, just because teaching can be like really high energy and my voice hurts sometimes. And also it, depending on the situation, it can be really like emotional labor intensive. Um, and so then it's usually that recalibrate, probably teach another class or two more. Um, and then once my day is finished, uh, I basically sit down to do all of my reporting, which is just basically logging and recording the data about the instruction sessions um, so that our department can stay up to date on that. Um, and then as an assessment librarian, it really depends um, on what project I have going on. So right now I'm analyzing instructional request data, but I'm also working on a data inventory for a whole library. So that means reaching out to different departments across the library and figuring out what are their data needs? What data are they collecting? How can they describe it? How can we track it over time? Um, so just kind of general assessment stuff, but um, I get a lot of autonomy as an academic librarian, which I love. Um, and also because I have fantastic support here. Um, so I have a lot of freedom to determine what my day-to-day -day looks like. 
and I have a lot of freedom to adjust my schedule as needed, um, which is lovely. So there's no uh, traditional nine to five. Um, I can do like seven to three or nine to eight. Like It really just depends. Some days I work a long time and then sometimes I'm like, okay, I worked like 10 hours the previous day. I'm only going to work like, you know, maybe like eight today or seven today. Something like that. So uh, teaching is certainly a tiring thing. Um, I think even if you love it and it's sort of like one of the reasons you're on the planet, you refer though to emotional labor intensive intensivity. And I, uh, we please say more about that. Yeah, um, the concept of measuring emotional labor is kind of new. And when I say new, um, remember that that concept requires a bit of nuance. So <laughs> things that are new in the hard sciences are published like in the last like year or two. And then things that are published in information science and the field of librarianship, if it's within the last 10 years, I'd say it's new um, because different disciplines, research and topics take a while to like gain momentum. Um, so this concept of emotional labor is like, it's identifying and describing the labor that you put towards your job, but it comes from an emotional aspect. And it also happens to be incredibly gendered, right? Because when you're stereotypically thinking of emotional labor, who performs it? like usually women for the most part, yeah. not always, um, right. but when you're thinking, you know, on a broad stereotypical level and there's been a lot of really cool studies about it, um, how emotional labor shows up in academic librarianship, especially during like instruction and reference interactions and stuff, because when you have students or just anyone coming to you with an information need, that need usually arises out of a place of urgency or stress or anxiety. Um, so somebody seeking um, medical information or legal information usually has something going on in the background that makes it like a bit more pertinent. And you have to like perform emotional labor to get them to like a more calm state and open to receiving information and also kind of like uh, assuaging where some of their anxieties are. And especially as an instruction librarian, we perform a lot of emotional labor, um, alleviating student anxiety and stress around research assignments, especially if it's their first one, like, and they've never seen anything like it. It can be so stressful and so anxiety inducing. And especially because we're seeing like mental um, disorders and mood disorders, like becoming ever more prevalent like this year. And I think that that's like a result of the pandemic and like with the state of where education is and and how students are feeling as self-directed learners. I think that has a lot to do with it right now, especially. And I think it's incredibly important to still be performing that emotional labor, but it can be really, really draining and exhausting. Um, and I mean, the good news is there's a lot of research being done about it. Like they're saying like, yeah, the emotional labor is highly valuable and we can concretely measure it um, in like weird nuanced ways. And it depends on the researcher's preference on how to measure that. Um, but um, I mean, they're all agreeing that it's, that it's valuable for sure, which I appreciate. Um, but it can be really tricky at times, you know, and it's, 
you know, you have like these beautiful moments sometimes where you do establish like an emotional connection, like with a, with a student or a patron about their information need. And that can make the job incredibly more fulfilling and rewarding. Um, but like I said, again, it can be really draining and require that sort of time to mentally like recalibrate. And it also has really, it's really heavily linked with burnout, which is a problem. And I'm more than positive that this translates across more, more fields than just librarianship. Well, that's how I was thinking. Like, I mean, I think that humans like to think that there are jobs we can do that don't require what you just described. And I, I feel like, I mean, you could do it without emotional labor, but you're missing like a whole aspect of it. If you're not doing this thing and, and maybe I'm leading the witness or jumping ahead, but I'm really interested in the, in the literacy framework and that conversation about meta literacy and the affective and behavioral and like, oh my gosh, like when we think about information literacy, we don't, I don't, I, I don't think about how important those other aspects are. And I think it's probably a big part of our struggle around information literacy is that we feel like it's this very just cognitive only experience and in in the best possible world, it isn't. No, yeah, it's not. Um, is your audience like pretty familiar with the concept of information literacy? I don't think they that's a safe assumption. By the <laughs> okay. end of this, no. Sure. Okay. So, um, just to prepare for that, so in within the field of librarianship, information literacy is like a set of abilities requiring individuals to recognize when information is needed, have the ability to locate it, evaluate it, and use it effectively when they need information. And that's um, based off of a definition that's provided um, from, I think, like American Library Association, um, ALA, which is our big accrediting um, entity for librarianship. Like, um, that's our like government, basically. Um, and that's how they define information literacy. And there's so many ways that you can create like a working definition of it or like a different version of it. But it's basically like how you find, interact, evaluate, and use information. And to be an information literate people and all people need to be information literate because it's not just about research. It's about any information need, like whether or not you want to buy the next generation of AirPods. Um, or if Adidas is a better shoe choice to you compared to Nike or medical decisions, right? Especially health and wellness. Like that is yeah. a big area to be information literate. So yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, just reading the framework, which I will have in the show notes. So those of you who want to nerd out, you can go and check it out. But um, yeah, let's, I guess, talk about that. Okay, yeah. So a couple things about the framework. So it was um, created by ACRL, which is, I think, like the Association of College and Research Libraries. And they have the information literacy framework and standards, and they are separate documents. The standards was created first. That's important to know. There were information literacy standards before there was a framework. So there was a measurement tool to measure information literacy skills before there was huh. a framework. And that's important because the framework comes after. And that's saying like, this is kind of like the more ideology behind it. And the framework is meant to be more of an inspirational tool 
than it is to be like a ride or die document. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, is a, it is inspiring. It, yeah, I, yeah, it I does agree. That. It is yeah. inspiring. So it's also really interesting too, because you get into other disciplines and they're finding out about the information literacy framework and standards. And they're like, oh my gosh, yes. Like 110% and librarians are like, we're skeptical. Duh. Ah, <laughs> really? That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, so I was actually talking with several other instructing librarians and critical information literacy specialists, and they're just like, we're not sure we're not sold. We don't know if it works. We don't know if it's good enough. There's tons of problems in it. Um, but at the same time, it's the best that we've got right now. And we all agree that for the most part um, is like within the field of librarianship, those conversations are taking place on where we are really critically thinking about that framework and the standards. And we're saying, one, do they work? Right? Like, is it is it working long term in our field? Right? And is it, can we even teach these things appropriately? Right? And if so, the standards, the measurement tools, are they, are they the best that they can be because you're missing major key concepts like data literacy, right? And that's a whole thing now. And it needs to probably be incorporated into the framework and standards. Um, and I, I assume like, I think it's, it will be. And for the most part, we are kind of just applying those things to data literacy or social media literacy or media literacy as we would just call it, like the bigger one. Um, but yeah, so the, the difference between the framework and the standards is think of the standards as like measurements. Um, and then the framework identifies core concepts of information literacy. And then it's meant to be an inspirational tool. And the core concepts, um, there's six of them. The first is authority is um, constructed and contextual. The That's second is information creation as a process. Yes. C, information has value. D, research as inquiry. Um, and then I think like the fifth one, scholarship as conversation. That one's interesting. Um, and then the last one is searching as strategic exploration. Well, so the thing, like, there's so many times when we have conversations on the show where like, I feel like if we were, if we were on TV, we would like freeze frame and be like, so listen, th those are like subversive things to put out there. Like yeah. the idea that research is actually just about inquiry, Yeah, that it's not about proof and that like, that that authority mm -hmm. is constructed and contextual. What? Like, so yeah. I just like, when you say it's an inspirational document, like I, I started like writing down, I'm like, oh my gosh, like we could spend hours on each of these and just how, if we were really to practice and live into these things, it would change the whole like information landscape. Yeah. And how, in your idea of how you interact with information, how you evaluate it and how you're using it is going to evolve throughout your entire lifetime. And I think that that can be kind of frustrating for certain people because they're like, no, give me like a step-by-step -step and I wanna know that it is what it is. And it's like, information is never what it is. Like it just, <laughs> I just, just I want, entered the matrix. I want you to say that again. <laughs> like it just isn't. Information right. never is what it is. It's always evolving. It's always changing because as you go out seeking information, you encounter new information, and your concept and your understanding of what is changes 
always, we're always discovering new stuff. And that's the beauty of it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Impermanence is everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. I know. Like, <laughs> Wow. The existential crisis. You know, like I remember I I took a course probably 15, maybe more years ago, where part of what I had to do was go and um, interview funeral home directors. And it totally changed my understanding of like the people who become funeral home directors. And like and and I feel like as you're talking, I'm thinking about like. I'm sure that there are, you know, there are lots of different types, quote unquote, of people who get attracted to library study, but that like, it would be a real miserable career to be in if you are really into empiricism. And if like, you're really like, I mean, if you were, I feel like if you're not comfortable (laughs) with the aliveness of information, it would be exhausting. (laughs) I will tell you one thing I know about especially, especially academic librarians, they are some of the most critical thinkers and true scholars to their core that I've ever met. Most of your academic librarians are wildly overqualified, like holding multiple postgraduate degrees. Like it is, it is wild sometimes. Like you'll have a liaison librarian, which is, that means usually like a they're a librarian who specializes in a p- specific discipline, like um, physical sciences, chemistry, okay. um, law, um, or like, and then you have like the humanities, like there would be like a European studies librarian, and then, then there would be like an American studies librarian, that type of thing. Okay. Um, these people usually not only hold a master's in information science, um, they also hold either a PhD or a master's level education in that area, if not two of them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which is, yeah, which is like kind of wild. And and a lot of the times um, it is preferred that if you're going to be a subject liaison, um, you have a master's or a PhD in that subject area of expertise before you have your master's of information science. Interesting. So these are people who are incredibly qualified, deeply intelligent, super critical thinkers, and like scholars at their core who are in the field of like librarianship. So, and then there's other, also other people who are like, just like, no, I'm like really data driven or like data <laughs> scientist people or like user experience people. Like it, it attracts like a wide variety and everyone's crazy cool. <laughs> that's awesome and nerdy on unprecedented levels but that, that's what makes working with them like so enjoyable and so exciting is because yeah. everybody's like experts in like their own like areas and then and then they have like little sub areas yeah also, yeah like, spoken experts of wow yeah So if you're enjoying this conversation so far, listeners, which I hope you are, because I am, um, I would like to note that um, Taylor is going to be our keynote speaker for day one of the lovely Within Reach Symposia. Um, And I'd like to tell an extremely short story about my search for librarians for 
this um, particular event <laughs> as um, I don't really know any. I know I have some friends who are now librarians that I knew in like high school through Facebook. And so I put out a call on Facebook and I was like, hey, people, I need librarians. And the number of answers I got from people that were like, I have the coolest friend and they're a librarian and they're so cool and you should totally talk to them was outrageous. Um, nobody was like, I have this boring librarian friend who might be of help to you. So um, the fact that I got to go seek and find a like stack of librarians was honestly one of the best things I've done in That's the past year. Awesome. <laughs> so Taylor, I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad oh, we both thanks. know Lydia. Well, and I wish you guys could see Taylor's face because like, she's just like, for real, so excited about just being a librarian, knowing librarians, like just all of this conversation. I mean, I feel like this is what's missing when people think about information and data. Like those two words just suck the air out of a room. Uh, right? <laughs> but they shouldn't. They get a bad rap. Yeah, because they can be cool. I yeah. promise. Yeah. <laughs> it just depends on how you think about it. But yeah. Cool. That was such a nice anecdote. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Or um, you had I, some, oh, go ahead. I, I kind of wanted to like reach back around to the um, research and anxiety portion of the conversation. Uh, yeah. One of the things we're trying to do with this conference is to, um, I don't know if it's exactly alleviate anxiety because I'm not completely sure that's possible, but to at least give people and massage therapists in particular a better grounding and a more realistic idea of research and the role in it and how and and I don't mean realistic by like, just sit in your chair and read stuff and that's good enough for everyone. But realistic as in like, there is a place for you to participate. It's important that you participate and you can participate, that that is not a door that is closed to anybody. Um, but it's also not, you know, it's not a simple door. It's like a cool French door that has like two <laughs> doors and you have to like open one before you open the other and then like make sure they're closed all the yeah. way and then lock it on the other side. Yeah. Um, it's one of those kinds of doors, but it is, it is an accessible door. Um, so when you are helping people with their research anxieties, um, are there things that seem to particularly help in those yeah. situations? Yeah, so one is connecting it to real life experiences. That's like the easiest way to talk about it. So, um, you know, like drawing on a professional experience that required them to do research or an academic experience that required them to do it, or even like a personal experience too. Um, that tends to be like one of the best ways to say, hey, you've already done this before you may not recognize what you're doing or you may think that because it was a fun experience and it was a personal one that like it wasn't research but it still is right like if you have a hobby <laughs> if um, it's fun it doesn't count yeah that's yeah, right. yeah and they're but they're like no if it was fun like I wasn't I'm like when was the last time you had a hobby or an interest that just consumed you and you had to go out seeking additional information about it right um and, and everyone's got one. I've yet to meet someone who doesn't have one. And I think that like tying it to that is one way that kind of relieves people. Another one I tell them to say, you know, you're not an expert and you don't need to be to do research. And also you don't need to be this crazy, intelligent, advanced 
researcher to know how to do research like and then that's when we talk about like what are some foundational skills right like i one of the best things that i love about my students right now is like they are google natives like they live and die in google like they know how to search in google so effectively and so i'm like yes this is one skill i don't have to necessarily teach we're just gonna build on right so you start taking like everyone types in one or two words in google right that's keyword searching right and that is the foundational like the best way to do any type of searching on the internet and and in academic um, and professional databases, as well as keyword searching, is you identify, you know, the best possible words and phrases to build what's called a search phrase and begin your searching. And then all I do is I help you identify like better, more appropriate keywords or certain strategies that allow you to use multiple ones all at once so that you can optimize your chances of like getting the thing that you want. And then also like so the first thing I do is I build on strengths. That's like part of my particular philosophy of doing, you know, uh, like critical empowerment is like, one, you ask them about like their lived experiences, what type of like, you know, experiences they have with research and also just like real life experiences. And you, at, you build on those and then you figure out where their strengths are and you build on those because why focus on your weaknesses right away when you can build on your strengths? And then that by proxy will just kind of take care of the weaknesses on its own, you know? Um, and then another way that I alleviate anxiety is demonstrating failure. This is really big. Um, and I tell, I tell my students this and I tell my friends this and stuff. And that is when you're searching for information, you're going to fail a hundred times you're going to fail all the time all the time every day yeah. I, this is my job i have a degree in finding information <laughs> i fail all the time mm -hmm. like literally every day multiple times a day i fail and you just get comfortable with the failure and you're not you're not supposed to find the perfect piece of information for your information need your first try that's crazy and it's it's wild for anyone to expect you to do that. And so expressing that failure happens all the time and that you can learn a lot more about a failed search than you can a successful one. You don't really learn too much if you get a successful search right away, but you learn what doesn't work every time you fail. And that makes you adjust your strategy. And, and then also, um, I mean, failure is just part of like the process and it goes to show you like if especially if you demonstrate it for them, they're like, oh, this happens to like the teacher like all the time. It's probably not that big of a deal if I don't succeed all the time. And then you're like, yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> and um, I want to say like another way for alleviating anxiety is. I usually like to ask them like, what's your like barrier, right? And you can ask this of yourself too. Like you can say, why is this anxious? Like, why is this bringing up anxious feelings for me? Why is, why is this becoming incredibly stressful? And usually you get a really simplistic answer. Like, I just can't find the thing I need. Just dig a little deeper. Like, what's the real question? Like, why, why does this bring up stressful feelings? You know, for students, they can be like, well, if I don't find the thing that I need, I'm going to fail my assignment. 
if I fail my assignment, I'm not going to pass the class. I have to retake the class. I have to spend another $3,000 to retake the class. And I'm already 15K in debt. And it just spirals, right? And so, you know, and then you're like, okay, listen, that's that's a way down the line, like type of thing. Like you're you're going a little too far with it. Let's dial it back. This is totally within your realm of control. You're going to find that information. And and then you tell them, you know, when when you are finding that information and, and you're having trouble, you just tell them where to look, like or, or where to go for help. That's what I mean. You tell them where to go to for help. If you are a medical or health and wellness type of person, one quick hack that you can do if you're like researching is like health and medicine libguides. Libguides are like a short term. That means that it is a research guide that has been put together by a library or a librarian. And there is a libguide for everything, everything. And it is a step-by-step -step process of what is it? Why do you need to search about it? Why is it important? How do you do it? And where, where can you go? Right. And if it ha if you're not like enrolled in an academic institution and you can't get access to academic databases, that's fine. Ignore that part. Just pay attention to the stuff that says, hey, here's some keywords you might want to try, or here's how you should think about your search phrases and things like that. And also, there will always be a little contact piece of information. Librarians, part of our job is helping the community. We aren't just limited to students. Like a, anyone can find like my email on a libguide I've created and be like, hey, I'm this regular person searching about this on the internet do you, and I'm not finding much of what I need. Can you recommend any search strategies? And it's awesome. Also like everyone has access to a public library for the most part and all of those librarians are trained to do stuff like this. Um, and then also if you're looking on a government website, oh, those people are so helpful. Not only do you have chatbots that are actually super useful, there's always a guide on a government website that says, hey, here's how you search us. <laughs> and then it's usually been put together by a government librarian. I'm and actually can... from the government and I'm actually here to help. Yeah, yeah, wild, <laughs> crazy concept, right? But they do, they wanna help. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so those are those are just a couple strategies is like look for a libguide, go to your public library. Also, you can Google how to search this website or like, how can I search more effectively on this topic? And you will get answers. I don't know that it ever would occur to me to search about how to search. Oh yeah. Like, I feel like that's such a, that's such a rich nugget for people who feel like, oh, I have no idea even how to start this. Yeah. It's like, just, yeah. Google advanced internet search strategies. It'll blow your mind. <laughs> if, if Taylor had a mic, <laughs> she just dropped it, you guys. She's like, boom, and I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about that you mentioned to me briefly um, and you mentioned today briefly is what kind of criticisms have specifically come up about the framework in librarian circles? As you said, the rest of us are very excited to have found it at all and it's thrilling, but what's up with it? Oh my gosh, this is just such a can of worms. And I don't even feel if I'm totally the best person to talk to about this because I'm still new in in the early, like I'm an early career librarian is what they call it. Um, so like I'm in like 
phase one of my long-term career, I guess. I wonder if, could you, could you say like, is it, is it issues of like comprehensiveness? Is it issues of like, it's too woo woo? Like, are people afraid of the inspirationalness of it? Like, no, I think it's okay. So definitely comprehensive. It doesn't include everything. Like, um, there's no data literacy in there. There's no media literacy in there, except for like new, like, not like a full revision, but there's, there's anecdotes that have been put out by ACRL that are like, Hey, here's how you do, you know, media literacy, things like that. Um, so yes, there's like a comprehensive issue. There's also a measurability issue, which is where the standards kind of come in, which is, it is incredibly hard to assess learning comprehension of information literacy skills. It can be really challenging because how you assess it um, varies across the board. And it usually is formative, not summative type of assessment. So like, you know, like, do you feel confident or like my perceptions of the library and of you learning these concepts is really good, but there's not a lot of like hard concrete data that says you proved to me you did this thing. And so it's it, it, it finding concrete ways to assess um, information literacy is can be challenging. And so there's the measurement aspect, which is a major critique. Um, whether or not it's effective is another one, like holistically speaking. Um, and then there's other conversations going on on how do you incorporate critical information literacy and social justice work into this framework, um, which librarians are huge, huge proponents of social justice. I mean, That's so fascinating. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we will, I know librarians like here in Texas who are like, I will die on a hill about book banning. You will not take a book from my shelves. Like I bet you will yeah. not tell me what I can and cannot do to put on the shelves because librarians, one, we're like, make all information free and accessible. There's, but there's like, we have our own code of ethics and we sign, like when we get like in library school, at least I did, we like sign a pledge upholding the values of librarianship. So we're like, no, I know that you're my employer, but I signed a code of conduct for my entire field. Wow. And we're like, this is like a thing. (laughs) No, it's a huge thing. document. I think it's called like the library bill of rights. You might want to look that up. It's pretty cool. Love it. Um, And like, you know, so free access to information and not choosing to, what is the word? I'm having a brain fart. Um, I feel like it's a paternalistic thing that could super happen super quick. Yeah, what's that? Censor, no censorship. That's like, Uh like we don't censor information. Yeah. Um, So if somebody's like, oh, I don't want you to include books like this in the collection, we're like, what? Like I'll, I'll die on this hill. <laughs> Don't tell me so, what I can't include. <laughs> I wonder if this connects to one of the questions that that I made notes about when I was reading the framework was this idea of use of information in creating new knowledge. Yeah. And I feel like you know, as as so yeah. as a trans person and as a person with a twelve year old son who is exploring non binariness, we're talking about sort of like where do you get your information 
so that you can know how to talk about this. And I feel like, like the don't say gay bill in Florida. And it was like, <laughs> you guys, Taylor is like jumping up and down in her librarian way. I'm just going to stop talking and let you, you know where I'm going. Oh gosh, <laughs> this is so multi layered. Yeah. Um, but that's the beauty of it is like how complex it can be. So we're talking about evaluating information, really. How can you trust information, right? And then how do you use it to build yes. on further information, right? The whole, I like the whole purpose of like research and scholarship and academic work. And, and this is not just applied to just academics. I mean this like from a purely like ideological scholarly standpoint, the whole point is to build on the shoulders of giants, right? You are interacting with information, creating new information, finding new discoveries, just to further the field of scholarship for the sake of furthering knowledge. That is, that is the core, right? And so that's the whole point of creating knowledge to build on it more later. Like it's always growing. That's why I say information never is what it is. It's always yeah. growing. Yeah. Um, but the Im evaluating information that you're talking about, there's a lot of different strategies there. Um, the first one that comes to my mind is authority is constructed and contextual. That is like uh, the first core concept of the framework. And that really just means like, what is authority, right? And especially in a particular context. Because uh, let me ask you this, like, um, if you are, if your dog is ill and you're mm -hmm. looking for veterinary information uh, or veterinary medicine information, and you're looking at a couple different sources. One is somebody who has owned the particular dog that you have, right? And they've had a blog for the last 10 years and they've owned this dog for the last 10 years. They've provided medicine and care for the last 10 years. And they're talking about healthcare for this animal. And then you have a vet who has an accredited degree talking about medicine. And then you have somebody who's a vet technician, right? They work in an office. They also have like a degree. They're from an accredited institution. Who's the authority that you trust? And also what is the utility of that information? Mm-hmm. It's not easy to answer always. <laughs> no. And it, right? it points to like, you know, I'm like, if you're asking me, I'll tell you what I think. But like, am I mistrustful of doctors? Am I like, you know, do I have a strong relationship with this person who has a similar dog? Like there's all these things that point back to what's the context? What's the, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So when you're thinking about authority, you need to keep in mind, like who how I word this is like who has the authoritability and the, uh, the authority and the credibility to talk about the thing that they're talking about right yeah. it's really cool that your neighbor who's owned this dog for like 10 years has a lot of experience right experience does count for something are they the most authoritative voice you could go to for help yeah no like they're they're clearly not like you can it, you can go to the vet, right? You can go to that person who's offering that information because you need to be thinking about like, oh, and I see your kitty cat. So this is even like a better like, <laughs> prime example. A, Nori's like, I'm the authority. That's all you need to know. Yeah, well, cats are. They are <laughs> it's the true. They are our gods and we are mere mortal slaves. Indeed. 
<laughs> um, and you think about, you know, like what other credentials or education experience or professional experience or personal experience. And then you have to think about things too, like um, where did their educational background come from, right? Um, is it from an accredited entity, an institution? Um, and also um, maybe are they like board certified? Cause that matters, you know, things like that. Um, are they well-respected within their community of scholarship? Or do they stand out as the quack? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, you know, and also thinking about things like, are they getting, are they using really current relevant information? So that's why I'm saying authority is contextual because there's so many things that go into play, right? All of these people I mentioned could have really valuable information to share about your information need of healthcare for your animal. Yeah. Who is the most authoritative voice is not always a black and white decision. It's mm -hmm. shades of gray across the board. Now, there are some very obvious red flags, right? If you have a mechanic who is talking about veterinary medicine, even if they own a dog, maybe don't listen to that person because that person <laughs> is an expert in mechanics, not an expert in veterinary medicine. Yes. You know, um, I am an information scientist and a librarian. I can speak within my realm of expertise, <laughs> but just my realm of expertise. If well, I'm and I feel about like health and wellness. Yeah. <laughs> we should raise an eyebrow. Yeah, it just should send off like little red flags. You know, when you're looking for who has authority and credibility to be talking about the thing you're talking about, look for green flags and then red flag the rest, right? But also yeah. authority changes over time. It really is contextual it, to your information need, especially, um, but also like the circumstances you're living in, right? Um, one example I can think of is like, Let's say somebody's doing a historical project, an analysis on women and gender in the United States in 2022. And you have a gender studies expert who, in the say, let's just say they identify as cis hetero male, and but they are an expert in their field of scholarship. And then you also have information from a woman who is just experiencing day-to-day -day gendered experiences in 2022, especially given the political climate. And then you have another person who doesn't identify as like cis-hetero. They are, um, they could be really anyone who has alternative pronouns or they just identify differently, or maybe they went through, or they could also be like a trans person as well. And, or they just have different experiences that aren't part of like the cis-hetero experience, the cis-hetero male experience, I should say. Um, who is the authority to be talking about gender experiences, specifically women gender experiences in 2022, right? Yeah. Who's that? That's why I say like authority can be really contextual um, to which I will always say personal experiences are great for testimonial evidence or anecdotal evidence. Um, but always back it up with research. Yeah. <laughs> my is my next caveat. Is my recommendation. It's not a live and die by, but I highly recommend it because the personal testimonies are awesome. But my experience is not every woman's experience. Right. Yes. 
I mean, recently, can I elaborate on that anymore? Did I just confuse a bunch of people? No, I mean, I, that you just asked us a couple of questions. I don't know that I can answer just right there, but I think that was that was a useful trip that Exercise. we just went on. Yes. <laughs> what were you going to say, Corey? Um, I was going to say that Calcates uh, went to a convention recently at SeaTac, and speaking of authority. Um, Cal, you said one of the things that had changed since the last CTAC, which I believe was before a pandemic. It was. Um, was that the people, the authorities who were there and on a stage were for the first time really there to listen to the people experiencing the problems instead of trying to make decisions without the participation of the people experiencing the problems. Yay! And Taylor just got real excited. Well, this is, I mean, as you were talking, I that's exactly what I was thinking, Corey. That, so CTAC is the Center to Transform Advanced Illness Care. And so not only were the people on the stage there to listen, but the people on the stage were a lot of Black women um, mm -hmm. and women in general. Uh, and I wonder about this. So you're talking about testimonials and we're talking about like, let's say we're talking about chronic kidney disease. Mm -hmm. If you look at the data about it, you could make all kinds of assumptions about why people have the outcomes they have, et cetera. And one of the, it, that's one of the big areas of discussion right now, because the people who are the sickest with chronic kidney disease don't show up in the data because they aren't, aren't well enough to participate in focus groups or to fill out surveys or, and so we're missing this whole group of people who could really say like, here's why dialysis doesn't work for me, or here's why this thing happened or that thing happened. And like, I feel like there's such a, it's such an exciting intersection of information because you need that information. And then you also, I'm assuming need some empirical data and like, how do you put those things together to make better outcomes for actual people? Nuance and critical thinking. Yeah. That's really, <laughs> I mean, that's my super basic, like first impression. There's actual strategies to like go into that, but every conversation requires nuance. And I think that a lot of people, especially in social media platforms right now, are really missing that. Things do not nuance like, in social media. <laughs> You're hilarious. I said nuance in social media. So <laughs> I know. I know. I love like, I mean, I love social media in the sense that like, I think it's such an interesting information landscape. So, so many but, thoughts about it. Well, so you, I mean, I want to ask you like sort of this more meta question about, you know, we're all about nuance and self-awareness at Healwell. Like that's, those are the mm -hmm. courses we try to teach. That's the way we talk about why yeah. the massage therapists that we train are different than some other massage therapists. And I, I have a fear that those are skills that humans do not have and that are not prioritized anymore. That like, the generation that's coming up isn't being taught how to be with nuance and how to, <laughs> I can't even describe the body language that's happening right now. And Taylor's like, is this over? Can I go? Cause, oh man. Um, I mean, it's definitely more than I can chew for certainly. Chew quite off for sure. Yes. Um, I, there are definitely more qualified like scholars in this field who can talk about this. Um, I, I get what you're saying. I pick up on that trend as well especially mm -hmm. because misinformation is just so relevant and not yeah. just misinformation, disinformation. disinformation and disinformation is like entirely sinister. That is the deliberate spread of no wrong information. stuff. And it is all over 
social media platforms for sure. And this, this thing of nuance that you're talking about, yes, is there are so many multiple parts of a conversation and you need to always be asking yourself, what is probably the missing part that's not being held in a current conversation or, and also like what can make it more enhanced or like what would bring it down? Um, what additional information would challenge this? Right. Um, and that's how you have like that nuance. Like that's, I love how you talked about that conference where they were like, we have the professional experts who were quote unquote, the authorities for that like discussion. And they were consulting the lived experiences of other people who were also authoritative voices, like in their experiences. Right. Um, and that's a nuanced conversation is they're like learning from one another and they're building a new conversation as a result. Um, this skill was actually, this was taught to me and so, and sometimes I teach it, it depend, depends on like the situation going around, but, um, and if anyone else wants to use this too, they're more than welcome to, but, uh, I always ask myself, like when I'm looking at information, I say like, who, who is authoring this information? Why do I think they're authoring that information? what is the purpose behind it? Like, do they have a motive? Is that clear? Because you're, you're looking for objectivity and like bias, you know, um, if that's present. But then I ask myself, what voices are not being presented in this argument? Who is not included in a conversation is just as important as who is having that conversation. Is there a voice who is deliberately not being included in that conversation. And that could be through negligence of the author, sheer ignorance or deliberate, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, that's one question I always ask myself, especially when I'm interacting with information online is what, yeah. what voice is not being represented. This is really common for like historical research too. Yeah. Um, but also in like health and wellness, like what data is not being included? Right? Yeah. <laughs> what experiences and or relevant information is deliberately not being included? Indeed. Yeah. 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 Wow. So I have one probably simpler question uh, mm -hmm. as we begin our uh, a descent into departure from this episode. But uh, if information and knowledge are different things, how are they different? Or is it just like epistemological similar? madness? Like I mean, we that's could just... definitely epistemological madness, but I love that. <laughs> um, you're definitely going to, I'm going to be late at, I'm going to be up late tonight thinking about this. Like it's going to drive me insane. You that makes me record, feel better. Um, you going to record I, a little thing on what... your phone and just send it in. We'll just exactly. It to totally. Yeah. Um, okay. That that's a perfect Don't answer. hold me to this like forever. No, no. <laughs> it's information. It always changes. It's fine. That's right. Um, if I had to provide an answer right now without doing background research, looking at other theories, totally. <laughs> that would be really that would be one of my first skills to do. But how I think about it in my mind is information is the data, knowledge is the analysis of the data. Mm-hmm. So information is like, let's say raw information and knowledge is like what you do with it. Mm -hmm. 
or how you construct knowledge landscapes around it. Yeah. So an information could be like the trees, the bushes, the grass, the clouds, right. the sky, and knowledge is the whole picture. Is, is information like the little individual Lego? And then you can build things from the Lego. Yeah, only it's like a soft Play-Doh pillow. Like, yeah. like Lego. <laughs> nice. a pillow. So it's, it's a, a bunch of clay. Play-Doh yeah. Lego yeah. that you can Squishy unfortunately one. shift and mold. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, kind of. That's that's my first stab at it. Yeah, well, I, and I think, uh, honestly, that, that really is the best answer because I... I, I, I love... I love how you gas at me on that question that like, here's a quick, easy one. And I was like, ah! That one's going to mess me up the rest of the night. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just, it, it feels like, I mean, I, I think we always talk about like, you know, sometimes you open your mind so much that your brain falls out. It's like, don't spend the rest of your life worrying about is this information or is this knowledge, but know that like they're different and like, what, like, be curious about like, wh- how are they different? And like, I, I don't know, is it oper- yeah. operationalization? Is it like context? I'm like, hmm, all right curious and since you live in this world I'm I was just curious like what do you think and so um, that was yeah. well now I have to write a philosophy book <laughs> I'll work on that in your spare time <laughs> yeah my spare time and it's working a full-time job and stuff yeah I'll just I'll just do that it's like my hobby is if my husband doesn't call me a nerd enough oh well <laughs> he's just jealous True. sure we'll leave yeah. with that <laughs> <laughs> Corey, got anything else? I mean, so many other things, but I don't think we have time. So some other time, perhaps. And and I'm so glad that you're going to be with us for the symposium and, uh, you know, just yeah. really launching us into this uh, crazy world of living stuff. Sure. Cool. Thank I'm excited. You. Yeah. Yay. I'll see you all in February for sure. All right. Thanks for yeah. being with us. And, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you all for being with us and uh, sticking with us in the living information ecosystem and being willing to not know and all the things. And uh, we'll be with you again real soon. Perfect. Thank you so much. Have a good night. All right. You too. Dave, whatever. I mean, you know. (laughs) Thanks, Taylor. Bye. Bye. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.